The Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, Sheila Zielinski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of The Sheila Zielinski Show. Thank you for taking the time out to tune into the broadcast today. If you are not subscribed to my YouTube channel, do that. Simply go to weekendvigilante.com and you'll see the social media icons there in the top right corner of the website. Make sure you're subscribed to my newsletter, my e-newsletter. It's free. Add yourself to that because I'm going to be sending a newsletter out this week and you're going to want to get this newsletter. Trust me. And stay tuned at the end of the program. I'm going to talk about my video equipment, Fundly Fundraiser, and the results of that. So do stay tuned at the end of the show for that. And I want to jump right into the show. My guest is Derek Gilbert from, of course, Skywatch TV. He has a long-running podcast, A View from the Bunker. I love that name. He co-hosts Sci Friday with his lovely wife, Sharon, who I've met both of them. And I'll tell you, just a great team. What we're going to talk about today is Derek's book, The Great Inception. I've got a PDF of it. I've been reading through it, and wow. Now, just funny side note, Derek and I won the Conspira Award in 2014 for the People's Choice for Top Christian Alternative Hosts. He won male, I won female, and him and I had the privilege of being part of Tom Horn's book, When Once We Were a Nation. I could go on and on, but without further ado, Derek Gilbert, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you back on, sir. It's my honor. Thank you, Sheila. Well, first of all, Derek, kudos on your book. I know the research and the time that goes into a book. You know, people ask me, how long did it take you to write Green Gospel? It was probably 10 years of knowledge, but it had to come together somehow. How long did this book take you to put together, Derek? Uh, It's something we started working on. I I guess I've been working on it for a long time without even really realizing that I was doing it. But um, I guess about a year and a half ago, Sharon and I were were, uh, in our weekly Bible study that we post at uh, the website gilberthouse.org, sort of a, a virtual Bible study. People had been approaching us at conferences saying, you know, we can't find churches that teach verse by verse exegesis. And so we've been going through the Bible verse by verse in chronological order, which is kind of neat. Uh, anyway, uh, we stumbled onto um, Exodus 14, uh, which is the Red Sea crossing, and uh, noticed in there a uh, verse that I'd never really heard discussed before. I didn't even remember it. I mean, we're all familiar with the story of the Red Sea crossing. I mean, you know, that's one of God's most spectacular miracles. I mean, great special effects, you know. But I'd never remembered the the verse before the actual parting of the Red Sea, which is that God told Moses to turn around. And so that that started me, you know, down down a path of, okay, why did God tell them to turn around? They were getting away. Well, God was arranging a confrontation in a very specific way. And come to find out that those sorts of confrontations, which are really spiritual conflicts, supernatural conflicts between God and the small G gods that rebelled against him, are all through the Bible. So I started digging into the Bible, and and this really builds on the, the work of Dr. Michael Heiser, his uh, Divine Counsel research, and especially his excellent book, The Unseen Realm. Without that as a foundation, um, the great inception makes no sense. And to some people, it still doesn't make any sense. Um, those are the people who say, this guy's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. There are no other gods except, you know, the God of the Bible. Well, okay, I understand why you're saying that, because I used to think that too, but that's not really true. Uh, the Bible calls these rebellious gods, gods, and God in the Bible calls them gods. So maybe we should stop imposing our prejudices on the text and read the Bible with the same mindset, worldview, that the guys who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually wrote the books of the Bible. Derek, the ancient scholars who translated the Hebrew into the Greek Septuagint, the Bible that Jesus and his disciples read, they understood Isaiah predicting the return of the giants with monsters at the advent of the destruction of Babylon in the final age. So from the Septuagint, we read, lift up a standard on the mountain of the plain, open the gates, ye ruler, I give command, giants are coming to fulfill my wrath. It talks about it being never inhabited and monsters shall rest there and devils shall dance there and satires shall dwell there. When we look at Isaiah chapters 9, 13 and chapter 29, it paints a pretty interesting mosaic. We know the flood came because the 
whole earth had degenerated into this zoo, this morphology of terror and corruption and perversion. Derek, have we arrived at the time spoken about by Jesus in Matthew 24, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be? Well, at the very least, we're a awful lot closer to that date than uh, when those words were written. There's no question about that. Um, it's, it's interesting that, as you're saying this, by the way, I'm making a mental note to go and dig out uh, the copy of the Septuagint that I've got from uh, uh, Tom Horn's um, researcher's uh, library of uh, ancient texts. Uh, I've got a copy of that in my office, and I need to dig into that because that relates to something else I just did a presentation on, which would have been so much cooler if I'd had you know that worked <laughs> into it. But anyway, but the, the translators of the Septuagint who were Jewish scholars who lived a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, and you're right, translated the uh, Old Testament into the Greek which is the version that the apostles, you know, of course, Jesus knew the original language, but uh, the apostles would have been familiar with the Greek text. And so this would have been in their minds as they were writing the, uh, the, the books of the New Testament, which, by the way, another rabbit trail here is where Dr. Michael Heiser's new book, Reversing Hermon, comes into play, uh, which I highly recommend. But the verses in Isaiah that you cite aren't the only places where that happens. It's clear that the Jewish scholars understood that the giants played a pivotal role in history. As Dr. Heiser explains it, if you'd asked a first century Jew, an educated Jew of the second temple period, which included the apostles, the guys who wrote the books of the New Testament, why is the world in the state it's in? They would have had a different answer than, than us 21st century Christians. I mean, we'd say, well, it's because of the sin in the Garden of Eden, which is true, but that's not the whole picture. They would have said, well, yeah, that was important, but even more significant to human history and the wickedness that we see going on around us, the wickedness of Rome, the wickedness of Babylon, the occult systems that have been put into place, uh, was the sin of the watchers on Mount Hermon and the forbidden knowledge that they brought to the earth that was brought back after the flood by the Babylonians who were awfully proud of that fact. And um, in my book, I explain that the Babylonians aren't actually Babylonian. There is no ethnicity Babylonian. They were Amorites, which relates to the kind of cryptic comment that God made to Abraham when he set the when he made the covenant in the fourth generation your descendants will return from a land that is not theirs Egypt because the iniquity the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete the Amorites founded Babylon and they were very proud of the fact that they brought back knowledge from prior to the flood that's what would have been in, in the minds of the first century Jews like Peter Paul John James Jude etc the, the uh, translators of the Septuagint not only translated those verses in Isaiah about God bringing giants back, which I think is really significant when you, you know, consider who's in the abyss and who opens the abyss, but they also translated verses like um, in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 5.18, David goes to war against the Philistines in the Valley of the Rephaim. The uh, translators of the Septuagint translated that place name as Valley of the Titans, a reference to the old gods of Greek mythology. Now, that is interesting because I found in my research for The Great Inception, peer-reviewed secular research by guys who are doing cutting-edge research, tying together pieces of this puzzle uh, that we Christians just have been missing because there aren't, uh, there, there's nobody except for Mike Heiser who is basically trying to bridge the gap between academia, secular academia, and uh, us lay Christians uh, a fellow named Amar Anus, who has written a couple of excellent papers that ought to be in everybody's reference, you know, library or you know, in a PDF folder somewhere uh, on your on your computer desktop. Um, one on the Mesopotamian origins of the Watchers, but the other one, the one that blew my mind, was a paper called "Are There Greek Rephaim?" and he goes into the etymology of the word Rephaim, and it's it's long and involved, and it's actually kind of boring. I had to read the paper like four times and take extensive notes just to get my head around it. Uh, But in a nutshell, he shows that the Semitic root for the word translated in the Bible as Rephaim is the root of a Greek phrase used by the poet Hesiod, who wrote a lot of what we know about Greek cosmology. And we tend to think of Greek mythology as these fictional stories like uh, Aesop's fables. No, this was their religion. This is what they understood about the way the universe worked. They were every bit as committed to Zeus and Hera and you know, Ares and Aphrodite as Jews were to Yahweh, okay? Hesiod wrote that in the golden age ruled by Kronos, who was the head of the Titans, the old gods who ruled creation before Zeus and the Olympians took over and punished them by sending them down to Tartarus, 
a, there was a, a race of men called the Marapes Anthropoi. And these Marapes Anthropoi, they walked the earth during the age of the Titans, before these Titans were thrust down to Tartarus by Zeus. Then they have to be the Nephilim, because the only place we see in the Bible uh, where the word Tartarus is used, in fact, it's not even a, uh, a noun, it's a verb. Second Peter 2, 4, Tartarau, which literally means thrust down to Tartarus. That's Peter describing what Yahweh, God, did to the watchers, the angels who sinned, the angels who kept not their first estate, the angels who sinned like Sodom and Gomorrah, sexual sin. The only place in the Bible where that happens is Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, where they came to earth, took wives, created the Nephilim. Now, we're matching, you know, just drawing connections here. That means the Titans are the watchers and the Rephaim these men, these Marapes anthropoi that Hesiod wrote about had to be the Nephilim. So I was like, okay, the Bible records a lot more of Greek mythology, and there are a lot more links between the two than, than I realized. But taking this a step further was when I found another paper by a scholar who, and, and this is well known, there's a funerary text. It's actually a text that was like a coronation ritual for a new king in the city-state of Ugarit. And Ugarit was on the Syrian coast. It was on the Mediterranean, northern Syria, around the time of the, uh, the judges. Um, the peak of Ugarit's power was between the time of the Exodus and the time of the judges. And this ritual that they enacted to crown the new king and to mourn the passing of his father, the old king. You know, it's the king is dead, long live the king sort of thing. But uh, this, this text, was tr which was translated about 35 years ago, uh, is titled by one of the translators, the... Um, Sacrifice of the Shades Liturgy, the Sacrifice of the Shades Liturgy. And in this ritual, these Ugaridians, who essentially were descendants of the Amorites, this was another Amorite kingdom, uh, worshipped the same gods, had the same rituals as their cousins over in Babylon, summoned the spirits of the Rephaim. We summon thee, O Rephaim. We summon thee, O Rephaim of the earth. And then they summoned something called the Council of the Dedanu. Now, going back to this uh, other paper on the Greek Rephaim by Amar Anus, he shows the etymology of the word Titans actually comes from this, 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 this name, Dedanu, which was the name of an ancient Amorite tribe from which descended the royal houses of Babylon, the old Assyrian kingdom, and the kings of Ugarit. So again, you know, we start drawing these connections and it keeps coming back to the Amorites and to Babylon and to the Titans and the Watchers, the Rephaim, the Nephilim. It's all intertwined. Wow, it is. This is, I mean, this is secular mainstream history. This is not a weird fringe fundamentalist Christian, <laughs> which I, I guess I am because I've got the award to prove it. But setting that aside, this is secular research that's documenting what the Bible's been telling us about these guys all along. Yeah, that's right. Boy, how fascinating is that? And the interesting tie-in is the Book of Giants, although it's not canonical, the apocryphal Jewish book that expands the narrative of the Hebrew Bible being antediluvian, so pre-flood narrative found in the same area of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it really highlights, Derek, these 200 watchers that came to Mount Hermon tinkering with not just the genetic makeup of humans, but all life on Earth, plants, animals. Look at the lion men of Moab, the Minotaur. Even the Canaanite tablet talks about these Egyptian deities, these god-men chimera. And that's really reflective of the burgeoning interest that Alistair Crowley's work, of course, he was dubbed the wickedest man on earth. He founded the religion at the Lima, the highest ceremonial black witchcraft and magic that encompassed a pantheon of Egyptian deities. And actually, it was Crowley that believed he was a prophet of Horus. And then you pair that with theosophy, Madame Blavatsky's work. I mean, this stuff really starts to paint a picture. It does. It does. Um, and what really blew my mind, and I, I touch on this in the, uh, in the book, that um, Crowley, I, I interviewed uh, researcher Peter Lavenda years back. I, I've talked to him several times. Um, Nice guy, enjoy talking to him, very intelligent and a really detailed, knowledgeable researcher of the occult. He is an occultist, he's not a Christian, but his book, uh, oh gosh, it was called The Dark Lord. He makes a really convincing case that Aleister Crowley and H.P. Lovecraft, the creator of the Cthulhu mythos, were drawing on the same spiritual source yeah. for yeah. information. 
And, um, you know, of course, the first question is, well, they lived at about the same time, didn't Lovecraft and, you know, they probably knew each other or knew of each other. But Lavenda says, no, Lovecraft had no idea who Crowley was. Um, Lovecraft was an atheist, but he created this, this mythos. And he shows uh, in his book, The Dark Lord, these um, weird, bizarre parallels that, that seem just too coincidental to be coincidence. Lavenda's got really good research he did on Mormonism, Freemasonry, and esoteric societies, including the route lines and the Nazi involvement with the occult. Right, right. Lavenda has got some really, really good research. He's also talked about the Nazi uh, influences on NASA and things like that. Um, But after Crowley died in the 1940s, his uh, acolyte, Kenneth Grant, took over his system of uh, Telema, his uh, magical system, and uh, developed it and transformed it into something he called the uh, uh, Typhonian magic, uh, like chaos magic. Well, Typhon was the Greek god of chaos. Uh, Typhon was equated with the Egyptian god of chaos, Set. Interestingly, Set and Baal, the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon, were equated in northern Egypt for a period of about 400, at least 400 years. They were considered to be the same entity, Baal, Set. And unlike later representations of Set, which had that weird uh, anteater-like head, um, he was depicted like Baal on the Egyptian iconography. Why did this happen? Because during the period from about 1750 BC until about 1550 BC, which is about the time Jacob and the house of Israel arrived in Northern Egypt to find food until about a hundred years before the Exodus, Northern Egypt was under the control of Amorites. They brought their God. They equated their chief God with the God Set, the chaos God. And he was worshipped even after these uh, Amorites, called the Hyksos by historians, uh, after the Hyksos got run out of Egypt by the native Egyptian rulers, who then, you know, became the pharaoh that knew not Joseph and began oppressing the uh, Semitic cousins of the Amorites, the, uh, the Israelites. They continued to worship Baal set. In fact, Ramses the Great, who ruled about 200 years after the Exodus, was a worshipper of Baal slash set. We know this because he erected a stela commemorating 400 years of something, uh, of Set arriving in Egypt, perhaps, which means that the Hyksos, the Amorites who came into Egypt, brought Set with them. Now, isn't it coincidental that this god arrives in Egypt just before the Israelites, remains after the Israelites, and now shows up again in the 21st century as part of this magical system <laughs> that that is now, and you could really argue that uh, if there's anything ruling the world today, you could make a pretty strong case that it's the god of chaos, uh, the uh, god who uh, dominates the magical system founded by Aleister Crowley and then developed by his acolyte, Kenneth Grant. Coincidence? Yeah, maybe, but I'm not much of a coincidence theorist. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it is fascinating, all these supernatural entities that have been assigned to these various nations. Chemosh for Moab, Moloch for Ammon, Baal for Canaan, Osiris for Egypt, and so on. But there's all these contradictory sort of things, too, because, you know, they can't make up their mind if Osiris is the god of the dead. Was he the ruler of the underworld? Was he a fertility god? You know, because the oldest religious texts referred to Osiris as possessing human form. And it was Set that was supposed to allegedly tore his body into 14 pieces and scattered them across Egypt. And Isis gathered, of course, the 13 pieces. And she was going to use magic to gather that last remaining missing member. Then there was going to be this epic great battle when Horus would slay Set and Osiris would return to the earth. But the interesting piece is the Egyptians believed that that last battle was still to come. The interesting thing about that, Sheila, is that uh, at, at the time that the Israelites were there, I mean, that's that's later legend that developed later in uh, Egyptian myth uh, when Set became considered a villain, you know, yeah. the evil god who murdered his righteous brother Osiris. Yes. But during the time that the Israelites were there, Set was considered a good god. He was beneficial. He would ride on the solar boat with the god Ra, and every night as the solar boat passed over the horizon, it was Set who would spear the, the evil snake, serpent, dragon, whatever called Apophis yeah. to keep it from eating the solar boat and keep it from <laughs> de- devouring the sun. Um, so Set was a good god, but he was considered not only the god of chaos, but the god of the desert and the god of foreigners. Well, in the first millennium BC, from you know 7th century BC till the 5th century BC, Egypt was overrun by the Nubians and then the Assyrians and then the Persians, one after another. So you know by about the 5th century BC, you know, the god of foreigners, Set, was not so welcome around the pyramids anymore. And that's when the mythology of Set 
really changed. Yeah, that's so interesting. And the imagery and the symbolism in everything is so fascinating. The sun god, the moon god, these serpents, I mean, even Freemasonry, it's incredible, all the imagery. It really does have a connection, doesn't it? It does. It does. A lot of that uh, imagery um, that comes into uh, Freemasonry, it, it, you know, means more than those guys think it does. That's one of the things I was looking at for the presentation I gave in um, uh, in Dallas, uh, looking at the moon god and, and trying to see what connections there are between the ancient moon god and, uh, of course, modern Islam, which uh, claims there is no god but Allah, and it's you know, Allah's not a moon god. Well, yeah, but you got this crescent symbol sitting on top of the clock tower yeah. that overlooks the Kaaba, um, you know, and that building was put up by the main religious authority in, in Saudi Arabia. So what, what are you doing? Oh, no, no, we didn't adopt the crescent moon until, a, you know, until we conquered uh, Byzantium in the 15th century. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the way you tackled this book is amazing. All the historical information, uh, as you say, the great inception will have you reading your Bible with a fresh pair of eyes. The links between these pagan gods, the Bible, the historical Nimrod you cover as well, the building of the Tower of Babel. It's amazing. The uh, It's so hard to take a vast amount of information and, and get it to what you've done here. Speaking of Nimrod, get into that part of the book a little bit because there's a lot of misinformation about Nimrod. The, the thing that surprised me because, you know, we keep hearing that uh, – uh, Nimrod founded Babylon. Well, okay, I deal with that in the book. Nimrod had nothing to do, to do with Babylon. Um, he lived at least a millennium too soon for Babylon. Babylon didn't even exist until 2300 BC, which was long after the flood. Nimrod was only the second generation after the flood. So he was in the fourth millennium BC, say 3500 BC, rough numbers. And you know that, that's not to say that Nimrod gets a bad rap or was a, was a good guy. He wasn't. Um, but there's a difference between Babel and Babylon, and that's the point. Babel was not at Babylon. Uh, Babel was at the city of Eridu, which was founded in the 6th millennium BC. There's a temple there to the god Enki, which is a compound word meaning god of the earth, lord of the earth, god of this world, you know. Uh, the, his uh, temple was called the Eabzu, which is the house of the abyss. And it was from the abyss that these Apkalu emerged to bring gifts of civilization to humanity. Well, the Apkalu were the Mesopotamian watchers. Okay, so this temple at uh, Eridu, uh, and I go into this in some detail in the book, and it's based on research by uh, uh, David Roll, the mm. Egyptologist who's, uh, you know, wants to revise the timeline of Egyptian history. And I, he makes some really good points there. But uh, his argument identifying the Sumerian king Enmerkar as Nimrod is convincing to me. Uh, Enmerkar, like Nimrod, second generation after the flood. And there's an existing poem that's been translated over the last couple hundred years called Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata. Well, no one's sure where Arata is, but it's somewhere neighboring on the plains of Shinar. Could be Iran, could be Armenia. Don't know. The point is that this land had building materials that this King Enmerkar, Nimrod, wanted for a building project. He wanted to build up the temple of Enki. Why? To make it a gleaming mountain. Okay, well, mountains are important because, as I show in the book, holy mountains have played a key role in human and supernatural history. Uh, Eden was a holy mountain. Uh, Babel was the artificial mountain. And the poem in the poem, this King Enmerkar says he wants to make it the abode of the gods. Well, mountains in the ancient world, everybody knew mountains that where the gods lived. I mean, they were pristine, unsullied by the touch of human hands. Um, so, of course, because they were clean and pure and pristine, you know, the gods get the best stuff. So that must be where they live. Yeah, uh, but I also think there's probably a shared memory that people remember there was a time when humans walked with God, Yahweh, in his garden, Eden, the holy mountain. Well, Enmerkar, Nimrod, wanted to turn this temple, the house of the abyss, into an artificial holy mountain as the abode of the gods. Now, what was supernaturally going on there? I don't know, but it was important enough that the Bible tells us Yahweh himself personally intervened to stop it. <laughs> yeah, you know you're in trouble when God himself intervenes. It's got to be pretty major. But there's another aspect, Derek, that you just touched on. It's interesting, the significance of mountains. You look at Mount Moriah. That's the place where Abraham offered Isaac. Elijah and the showdown at the prophets of Baal. That was Mount Carmel. The Mount of Olives was significant. 
Mount Hermon, the 200 Watchers. Even our friend Tom Horn has chronicled the Catholic Church has taken a whole lot of interest on what's on top of Mount Graham. Mountains seem to really play a significant role, not just symbolically, but they have value. It almost seems like God reveals himself on the mountaintop, doesn't it? Yes, right. Sinai was another holy mountain, Mount Zaphon. And this is, you know, coming back around to the Red Sea crossing. If you look at um, Exodus 14, where God tells Moses, turn back and camp at Pi Haharoth in front of Baal Zaphon. Hmm, huh, okay. Now, first of all, we've already addressed the problem, uh, the, the question of why Baal, a Canaanite god, was even in Egypt. That's well, because Canaanites, Amorites, were there in control of Egypt. So the Egyptians <laughs> in Exodus 14 weren't Egyptian. They were Semitic. They were Amorite, and they worshipped Baal. Baal, the storm god. Baal, the master of the sea in Canaanite cosmology. Baal was the one who subdued the chaos god of the sea uh, called Yam in Canaanite uh, cosmology. Um, Baal was the, the patron god of sailors for that reason. Yeah. The, the Phoenicians, who were the descendants of the Canaanites, who themselves were descendants of the Amorites, um, worshipped Baal for thousands, of, you know, for like 1,500 years. Baal was their god. Okay, so what is a Zaphon? Well, Mount Zaphon, which is like 600 miles north of there, it's in Turkey. It's on the Mediterranean coast, right on the border between Turkey and Syria. Today, it's called Jebel al-Akra. It's like a mile high. Uh, you know, the elevation is like 5,200 feet. Everyone in the ancient world knew that was where Baal's palace was located. So for some reason, 600 miles south of there, you got a place sacred to Baal on the, coast, on the shore of the Red Sea. And, and by the way, for skeptics who say, well, that, the, uh, you know, that this was really the Reed Sea and it was really a marsh because an east wind couldn't blow hard enough. Look, patron god of sailors, what sense would it make to put a site sacred to the patron god of sailors at the edge of a marsh or a swamp? No, this was in the Red Sea. Wall of water on the right, wall of water on the left. God specifically arranged this confrontation at the Red Sea, which is supposed to be Baal's domain, you know, the one who mastered the sea, defeated the sea, um, in front of a place sacred to Baal to make a point, a supernatural point. This is supposed to be your place, your domain, and I, Yahweh, am demonstrating my mastery over it. My people escape with a wall of water on either side. Your worshipers, your soldiers, drowned. This was not God just delivering Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. This was God delivering Israel from the hand of Baal. And the Bible, like I said, is full of confrontations like this, if you know what to look for. You'll get a kick out of this story, Derek. So the other night, I'm watching Clash of the Titans, and, it's, <laughs> and it starts off by saying, get this, when Titans ruled the earth, Zeus became the king of the heavens, like he created man or something Poseidon, king of the seas, Hades, ruled the underworld. It starts off saying, into the world a child was born who would change everything. And they introduce Perseus, his character, salvation through a baby. Hmm, where have we heard that before? So interesting side note is that the name Perseus is actually derived from the Greek verb Perthian, and when you study that out, it actually means to waste, ravage, and destroy. I mean, that doesn't sound like salvation. That sounds like a whole lot like John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, ravage, lay waste to. And it's really very coterminous with a lot of the principles of Islam that you can see worked into this thread as well. And they're, you know, this whole rehash of the Amorites like you talked about. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think um, what we have in Islam, and this is the point I made in the presentation I gave at the Hear the Watchman conference in Dallas, that um, what we have in Islam, in my opinion, is the supernatural equivalent of a corporate merger. Okay, the chief gods of the Amorites, when you look back over their history, and the Amorites emerged on the world stage around 25, 2600 BC. Those are the oldest references that we can find in uh, Mesopotamian texts. Um, judging by their names, because everybody back, you know, 5,000 years ago, had a theophoric element in the name, the name of a god in the name. And we even see that in the Bible with names like Samuel and Hezekiah. That's yeah. uh, the, you know, the Yahweh element. Um, based on the theophoric elements of the Amorite names that show up, their main gods were Enlil, the chief god of Sumer, the moon god, believe it or not, 
The sun god was actually a junior member of the pantheon. The sun god was the son of the moon god. The moon god uh, it was, was actually far more important. And in fact, there's some evidence that I'm going to bring into the next book that I'm working on that shows that uh, the founders of Babylon were actually worshipers of the moon god. Uh, but, you know, you think, okay, Babylon, well, their chief god was Marduk, right? Because Marduk w- became the king of the gods. Well, yeah, but that was more of a political thing. Yeah. As Babylon became more important politically, Marduk became more important to the pantheon. But the kings who founded Babylon, including Hammurabi the Great, were actually considered the moon god to be the chief of the pantheon. And there was a text just translated within the last year that uh, describes the moon god seen as the king of the gods convening the divine assembly and the chief god Enlil and his father, the sky god Anu, actually serving as his uh, assistants, his viziers. So the moon god, key to the Amorites, along with Enlil, who was, again, the king of the gods. Uh, Then you've got uh, Hadad, the god that we normally know in the Bible as Baal, the storm god, and uh, El, who was the chief god of the Canaanites, kind of (laughs) semi-retired. He would be like Kronos, sort of, in the the Canaanite equivalent, although there's no record of him being punished by being sent to Tartarus, but still. But Derek, don't you Uh, find, as you're talking about this, don't you find it fascinating that all these polytheistic systems, when you look at all this divine council of pantheons, what's frightening to me is all these androgynous divinities, though. Well, that's the other thing I was getting to. There was one other god that uh, was not male who was considered to be really important to the Amorites and to the entire ancient Near East. Um, and that is the goddess Inanna. Inanna, who is known as Ishtar, who is known as Astarte to the Canaanites, Aphrodite to the Greeks, Venus to the Romans. Um, she is the original gender bender. There are texts that go back to the mid-third millennium BC, ancient Sumer, that talk about how, uh, that quote Inanna is saying, when I sit in the, air, the ale house or the, the tavern, I am a woman, but I am also an exuberant young man. Uh, okay. And other texts that describe her, how she changes the right side, the male, to the left side, female. She changes the left side to the right side. She turns the male into the female and the female into the male. And her, her followers included transvestites and eunuchs and cult prostitutes who went either way, both ways, whatever. Um, yeah, the worship of Inanna, the goddess of sex and war. And by sex, we don't mean, you know, between a, a husband and a wife. We mean twisted, perverse, carnal sex. Um, yeah, she was really important to the ancient Near East. And the case that I made was that when you look at Islam today, you've got a, um, you've got a religion that claims it's worshiping the God. Okay, the name of Allah comes from Arabic il Allah, meaning the God. Etymologically, you can draw a link either to Enlil, which progressed through the Akkadian to Arabic, or to the Canaanite god El, either one, meaning the God, underneath the moon god symbol, and then showing aspects of, you know, between Baal, who's not only the storm god, but a god of war, uh, and uh, Inanna, the goddess, except for when she's an exuberant young man, of course, being the god slash goddess of sex and war. Like I said, it's a supernatural corporate merger because if if we've learned nothing for 14 centuries of uh, Islamic history, it's that they are, that it is a warlike religion and it, twists human sexuality into really perverse ways. Our media here in the West doesn't like to talk about it, but <laughs> you don't have to dig really far to find that uh, it encourages and kind of looks the other way at pedophilia, yeah. homosexual yeah. pedophilia, uh, marital infidelity, for men anyway, women who get caught, well, they get killed. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, a twisted religion. It really stands everything that Yahweh brought to Moses in the law the standard of morality, and stands it on its head. You know, the primary symbol, by the way, the moon god was a bull. Right, right. It was this horizontal question, and then it had the horns. But guess what? It looked very Baphomet in nature, which is, I just find an interesting side note. But these old Babylonian fertility gods, not surprising why we have cannibalism, the shedding of blood and the eating of human flesh. And you got, you know, Cannibal News Network with a guy eating human brains. I mean... What in the hell is going on? What in the heck is going on here, Derek? <laughs> well, I think you had it right. It's hell. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is It is a, a world. Uh, it, this is the manifestation of the rebellion of the small G gods. And, and that's I, I think that these uh, old gods have never gone away. Um, they are. And I think the reason Islam 
is continuing to grow after 14 centuries when most of the other ancient pagan religions have fizzled and nearly died is because it is a collaborative effort on the part of multiple entities. I mean, they, they basically have pooled their efforts. They've rebranded, as if you will. And um, at the current rate of growth, Islam will be the largest religion on planet Earth within the next 50 years. Yeah. And, and this is true, I guess, in all religions. Uh, but, um, you know, there are many Christians who call themselves Christians who, who really aren't. And I imagine that's true in, in Islam and every other, you know, religion as well. But um, when you get right down to what the texts, the holy texts of the various religions believe, there is a clear difference between the texts that guide true believers in Islam and the texts that guide true followers of Jesus Christ. Derek, you mentioned something that I thought was so interesting. I want you to touch on this a little bit more. You say this phrase, and I thought, it, wow, it's so compelling. You say the most diabolical double cross in history. Talk about that. Well, this actually dovetails with what we've just been discussing regarding Islam. Um, and I say this with no joy, but I, I think in the, uh, the, the most plausible end-time scenario that I can concoct in my mind, the only role I can see Muslims playing in end times is, uh, is as cannon fodder. And the, I have to give credit where it's due. Uh, Chris White, a very intelligent young man who wrote a book a couple of years ago called False Christ, started me down this, this uh, path. Uh, he makes a case that the, um, that the Antichrist will present himself to the world as a Jew. And that's not a new theory. There were a number of uh, very prominent early church fathers like uh, Hippolytus of Rome, uh, Irenaeus, who believed that the uh, Antichrist would be a Jew, and specifically from the tribe of Dan. Uh, Dan, of course, is the one tribe not mentioned in the book of Revelation among the 144,000 Jewish uh, witnesses. Um, if you look at Daniel chapter 11, the last 10 verses or so, verses 36 through 45, it, it reads like a summary of any of the, the wars of um, Israel's history since 1946, 47, where the kings of the South and the North you know, rush in and uh, yet they're, they're defeated and then news from the East will alarm him and, uh, you know, he'll go forth. And you know, it, it's possible that this could represent the, the Psalm 83 war that uh, Bill Salas has written about, oh. where uh, Israel's near Muslim neighbors attack it and are defeated uh, in, in a, like a, a series of lightning strikes that, that basically destroy the Muslim military influence uh, and, and threat. And then this, this, king uh, sets up his palatial tent between the holy, uh, the holy city and the sea. So somewhere between Jerusalem and the sea, this, this victorious leader will, will set up his, his offices. And then at the end of uh, Daniel 11, it says, and yet he will fall with none to, none to help him. As Chris pointed out, this tracks with a couple of things. First of all, it tracks with Jewish eschatology. Jews who expect their Moshiach to appear um, are looking for the uh, the Gog Magog war. I mean, they're they're not. You know, we're, we think in terms. We Christians think in terms of Armageddon. That's New Testament. Jews yeah. don't acknowledge that as inspired scripture. They're looking for the Gog Magog war and the Mashiach to come out, um, emerge during that uh, conflict to save Israel from the forces of Magog. And this gets back to what I said earlier about people who profess to be Christian or Jewish or Muslim, but not really knowing the texts, not yeah. really knowing their holy scriptures. You know, we're seeing rabbis today uh, for the past two years, rabbis who have never been known to set dates. You know, the Messiah is almost here. The Messiah is at the door. He could appear at any moment. Don't leave Israel because you might be out of the country when he appears. <laughs> That's how close they think it is. They think there are some anyway, not, I shouldn't say this is a universal uh, teaching, but there are some who believe that the uh, Syrian civil war is the war of Gog and Magog. And so they're looking for a Messiah, their Messiah to appear at any moment. But Jewish eschatology uh, calls for two Messiahs. There's Messiah ben Joseph, who appears and leads Israel in the fight against Magog and is killed. And then Messiah ben David comes along and resurrects him, wins the war over Magog, and then resurrects Messiah ben Joseph and then judges the world and throws the, uh, the nations and their guardian angels into Gehenna. Sadly, for most of the rest of the world, including us Christians, that would be, you know, us. But there are some who teach that when this Messiah ben Joseph uh, dies, that he might be resurrected and then become Messiah ben David. And wouldn't that fit exactly with the biblical prophecy in the book of Revelation, that the beast suffers, one of the heads of the beast suffers a mortal head wound? Right. 
but then is suddenly resurrected and the world marvels. So you've got this potential fulfillment of Jewish prophecy actually fulfilling Christian prophecy as the result of a war in which Israel is victorious over its nearby Muslim neighbors. In this scenario that I'm spinning out here, Muslims would serve no purpose except to draw Jews into welcoming the Antichrist with open arms. Because as far as the fallen, these rebellious small-g gods are concerned, Muslims are already lost. They are already in their camp. They don't have to do anything to get them. They've already got them. So what role, what use are they except to use them to deceive Christians and Jews into accepting the Antichrist? Now, how would Christians be deceived? Let's be honest, Sheila, you and me as believers in, in Bible prophecy, that it's going to be fulfilled, we're in the small minority. Yeah. Most Christians around the world are amillennial. They don't believe that the book of Revelation is literally going to be fulfilled. Oh, that, you know, that was first century stuff, that stuff. It's, you know, it's symbolic. It doesn't really mean it. But in general, American Christians, American evangelicals are far more supportive of Egypt, even than American Jews. And typically, if there's something that we perceive as good for Israel, we're all for it. So what happens if a dynamic political or military leader or both emerges during an hour of Israel's crisis? and win smashing victories over their nearby Muslim neighbors. Well, there are some sectors of American Christianity that would actually consider that leader to be the embodiment of Jesus Christ. Now, we're talking a hyper-charismatic New Apostolic Reformation, possibly um, looking for the manifest sons of God, uh, you know, the actual embodiment of Jesus Christ in a person or a number of believers. But again, what I'm saying is that... Uh, the deception doesn't need to specifically fulfill Bible prophecy because the vast majority of Christians, American Christians, either don't know enough about Bible prophecy to know what's going to be true or not, <laughs> or they're not expecting it to be literally fulfilled because they're you know getting new revelation from these modern-day self-anointed, self-appointed apostles and prophets. So Jesus warned us to be ready for a deception, warned us of a coming great deception that would be so insidious that it would fool even the elect if that were possible. So when we hear these theories that the Antichrist is going to be somebody really obvious, like Barack Obama or a Muslim. <laughs> or Donald or, Trump. Or Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin. It's like, please, are you kidding me? I mean, come on. Let's, let's be a little more devious, a little more sneaky here. It's going to look like somebody that on first look to most Christians, and I argue most Jews, uh, on, at the first look, we're going to think he's on our side. I mean, Jesus said this will fool even the elect. If it were possible, I think we need to be a little more devious when we're coming up with our theories here of who the yeah. Antichrist is going to be. And that's why I think Muslims are going to be used as cannon fodder. Their only role, the only useful task they have to fulfill for their demonic masters is to die. And again, I say that with no joy because Christ died for them too. Yes, he did. And they're very duped. You know, I mean, the bloodshed and the rampaging and the butchering, it's unbelievable. Demon masters, boy, you said that right. Actually, that reminds me, Derek, I read a survey recently that said 73% of the Christians polled in this very large survey said that they didn't believe in demons, the devil, or hell. That to me is jaw-dropping, but it's kind of really not surprising, sadly. Yeah, and the majority of Christians don't believe the Holy Spirit is a literal entity either. Right, so, uh, right, right. yeah, oh, no, it's just it's a symbol that represents God's love. Uh, well, that's not how the Bible describes it. So, you know, maybe you need to rethink your your understanding of Scripture there. Uh, so that that so that's why I argue. Now, having said all that, I do I believe that this absolutely is the way things are going to play out. To be honest with you, I really don't know. I don't know, and I make the point in the book that um, none of us is really going to have it figured out. I mean, look at the first century apostles. They didn't understand the prophecies of Messiah's first coming, and they had the opportunity to learn directly from Jesus. But Paul explained that, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. And he says, look, we're revealing a mystery that God has, uh, you know, decreed since the beginning of time. And I'm paraphrasing and mangling it here. Forgive me. Um, but he said, the, the, the rulers of this age— and the Greek word translated rulers is archons. He's talking about supernatural entities here. The rulers of the age did not understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rebellious fallen angels and their demonic servants didn't understand the, the, the prophesied mission of Jesus either. They knew who he was. The Bible's clear on that. But they thought they were short-circuiting. They were defeating him by putting him up on the cross and killing him before he could become the 
geopolitical savior that the Jews expected. But that was exactly what Jesus wanted them. That's what God wanted them to do. So God, I think, deliberately obscured the prophecies of Jesus' first coming, the Messiah's first coming, so that the enemy couldn't fabricate a really convincing lie. So I don't think we're going to understand the prophecies of his second coming any better. So be prepared to be surprised. Pray for wisdom. Let the Holy Spirit guide. But I just don't expect anything quite so obvious as an Islamic antichrist. Because, I mean, seriously? I mean, that's that's just, you know, why not just put a big banner across your, your forehead that says, hi, I'm the antichrist. That's just, that's just a little, the, the, the enemy's going to be a little sneakier than that. Yeah. Well, and as you said, you know, you're standing on this battlefield, you're surrounded by an enemy that you don't even know you're being told it doesn't exist. So it's a, a classic example of you, as you've alluded to, Derek, of a of a psyop. This is mm. completely, and it goes, I was going to say, as you said, the, there's going to be a deception. Maybe you should have called it the great inception to the great deception. <laughs> well, it was a, definitely a play on words, and it's a reference to the <laughs> science fiction film starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Where he plays a character who figures out how, how to implant ideas in the dreams of people so that they think that these dreams, these false, this false information is real. And it changes how they behave because they're reacting to information that they think is real but is actually a lie. Well, the enemy has been doing that to us since the Garden of Eden. Oh, if we eat this fruit, we'll be like God's? Well, great, let's eat the fruit. Okay, the information was incorrect, but because Adam and Eve believed it was correct, they went ahead and did what they did anyway. And how did that work out for us? Well, I'll tell you, it's a must-have book, The Great Inception, subtitled Satan's Psyops from Eden to Armageddon. The way you've combined research from scholars of ancient history, languages, archaeology, Bible prophecy, it's, it's really amazing. It's an epic tale of a war between God and the rebel gods who really, as you say in your Summary, want to usurp his throne before he can restore humanity to his holy mountain and the place we had in the divine council. And again, just great book, great title. And I saw that it is now officially available. And so tell folks where they can get it. Uh, first of all, credit where it's due. Sharon came up with the title. So she deserves the credit for that. Just with everything else that uh, is smart that comes out of our house, it, it came out of her head. So <laughs> credit where it's due. Um, the book, because of the delay, your listeners are not missing out. They've not missed out at all. Um, they can get it from Amazon, of course, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, brick and mortar stores should have it as well. You can also get it from Skywatch TV. And if you go to skywatchtvstore.com, Tom Horn is offering another one of his crazy Tom deals where you can get that book plus Mike Heiser's new book, Reversing Herman, plus a, uh, hardcover edition of the book of Enoch, which is important to both books, plus a DVD with, um, about five hours of uh, content, three hours of me giving presentations on the material, plus two hours of interviews with me and Mike Kaiser talking about the two books, and an MP3 CD with seven hours of interviews, me interviewing Mike Kaiser on everything from the Divine Council to his book, The Unseen Realm, to the new book, Reversing Herman, all of that together for 30 bucks, which is like $100 worth of stuff. So that would be the place to go if you want the other stuff. But of course, if you just want the one book, uh, you'll find it at Amazon. Just look for it. The Great Inception, Satan's Psyops from Eden to Armageddon. Wow, what a great deal Tom has on. And speaking of Tom Horn, Derek Gilbert, Steve Quayle and others, wow, this September, in addition to this must-have book, this is a must-get-to venue because the information, the lineup of speakers, the venue itself is incredible. Talk about True Legends, the conference. And give us a little sneak peek of what you're going to be talking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Mansion Theater in Branson, uh, September 15th through the 17th. It's the True Legends Conference, uh, sponsored by Steve Quayle and Timothy Alberino, Gen 6 Productions. Um, I, it was an honor. I mean, Steve didn't know I was writing the book. I gave him a copy in the PDF. And uh, within a couple of days, he got back in touch. Said, do you want to speak at the conference? Like, well, let's see. Steve Quayle, Tom Hornelli, Marzulli, Michael Lake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, gen6conferences.com is the... Um, uh, is where you go to register. And um, boy, it's going to be phenomenal. I've, I've had the chance. To, I went down there with Tom and Steve to look at the Mansion Theater. And it is amazing. 3,000 seat theater, normally used for music or stage productions. Um, so really comfortable seats, great sight lines, great audio, great oh. AV. So this, you know, the, the, the visuals will be awesome. Um, I'm going to do a, a talk on 
an aspect of the book that I haven't really touched on, but it will dovetail nicely with the research that uh, L.A. Marzulli, Steve, and Tom have been doing, and Timothy Alberino into the uh, the Giants. One of the things I stumbled onto in my research of the ancient Near East, which I didn't expect, was finding out that in the pre-flood era, so we're talking using the standard chronology of secular scholars, uh, say 4,000 BC and earlier and older, everybody in the ancient Near East, and we're talking now what, you know, the lands that today are Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Iraq, okay? Every set of human remains that's been found in that period of time from that area had a deformed skull. Now, I don't speculate on how they got deformed. Most of the scholars say, well, it's from head binding, and that may well be true. But even if that is the cause, the question is, why? Why were they doing it? What was the deal? So, you know, um, L.A. Marzulli's been focusing on skulls from, uh, say, the uh, you know 800 B.C. or thereabouts in Peru. I'm taking you back to 4,000, 6,000, 10,000 B.C. and asking why, between the time of Eden and the time of the flood, was everybody in that part of the world engaging in cranial deformation? One scholar wrote in a paper that I've, I've flagged and, uh, you know, marked up with yellow highlighter, the ancient Near East was ground zero on planet Earth for this practice. Wow, that sounds very fascinating. Cannot wait to hear you cover that. Derek, thank you very much for coming on the program today. My honor. Thank you, Sheila. Folks, that was Derek Gilbert. His book, The Great Inception, Satan's Psyops from Eden to Armageddon. Get this book. Skywatch TV again having a fantastic deal. Reversing Herman, Michael Heiser. I want to get him on the show too. What an amazing combo of books. And then, of course, you get the extra bonus stuff. $30. You cannot go wrong. The information is linked there on the bio today. SkywatchTV.com. You'll see the banner, the Cosmic War Collection from Dr. Heiser and Derek Gilbert. It's on the right-hand side. Order it today. I'm still reading through it. I haven't finished it. But so far, all I can say is, wow. I cannot wait for Branson. Folks, get your tickets for that. They're selling out fast, and you do not want to miss that event. True Legends, the conference, Branson, Missouri, September 15th to the 17th. Again, Steve Quayle, Tom Horn, L.A. Marzulli, Derek Gilbert, Ansem Rambla, Timothy Alberina, Michael Lake, David Langford. I mean, what kind of a who's who is that? Very exciting stuff. Go to gen6conferences.com and lock your spot in today. Thank you very much for taking the time to tune into the program today. We will see you again soon. Good night, and God bless.